Greetings, Dysfunctionals. Dr. Ernesto here again with another episode of The Reality Dysfunction. I have three very special guests with me today. The first is Dr. Caitlin Noss, the Executive Director of NYU's Prison Education Program and faculty in Prescott College's Social Justice Community Organizing Program. Also, Jose Diaz. Jose is an NYU master's student in the social and cultural analysis and NYU prison education program, where he works as the student services coordinator. Also joining us today is my colleague, Dr. Zoe Hammer, a longtime prison abolitionist and director of the Prescott College Social Justice Community Organizing Master's Program. Through a mass and well-coordinated organizing effort that Jose Diaz was released from Rikers Island after being put there on a technical violation. This happened right after the cases of COVID-19 began to skyrocket in the New York City area. Today, we are going to talk about what was going on inside Rikers Prison, the lack of medical attention, and the need to dismantle the prison industrial complex. Thank you for joining us today. Could you guys hear me? Yeah. We can now. Jose, I have to tell you, this is Todd and Zoe are, I'm not sure if the full context here was like presented because it's been wild. Jose has been home for less than a week and it's been non-fucking-stop. So you're Todd or Ernesto? Both at the same time. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) But Todd and Zoe are my coworkers from Prescott College um, who are also like my closest friends and the people who really taught me how to organize. So they're the SJCO faculty and they're the real, real deal. So okay. I'm really, and they're like my, my, my best folks. So I'm really happy that you guys are getting to meet. Um, too bad it took the pandemic to bring us together, but here we are. Jose, uh, how are you doing, brother? You've had, All right. Uh, you've had quite a journey. Yeah. Yeah, it's just been interesting to say the least. Yeah, I didn't think that um, when I will be called um into parole that um i would be reincarcerated in the middle of a pandemic it's like something out of a movie uh starring like uh the daniel craig or something I don't yeah. know. not me <laughs> it's been a hella 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 journey todd and mainly because it's like you know rikers island as i remember it was hasn't been the same or was not the same it's like really purely chaotic so is there anything in specific that you would like me to speak about so I can just make sure I hit certain points or just well, ramble? I mean, I would be interested in hearing about uh, the conditions. I was listening to the, demo- not the d- democracy now, the, um, the, the beyond prison, the beyond prisons, right. Which I'm also going to include when I post this podcast, I'm going to include the link to that podcast also. It was really good. So good. I think awesome. part of, Part of what I'd really like to talk about today is the capriciousness that landed you back. I called it a technical violation in the opening piece that that I read. You're put back in there right as the the number of cases of COVID-19 begin to skyrocket right in the New York City area. And so, you know, I really want to talk a little bit about like what it was like inside Rikers right at that moment absolutely the lack of medical attention because that to me was one of the most horrifying pieces of that uh beyond prisons to be incarcerated but to be incarcerated in a way where it was clear that nobody gave a fuck about if you were sick or other people were sick or or anything like that and then what i'd actually like to also really talk about is your studies in in latino studies and the need to dismantle the prison industrial complex. Let's really, see if I can do this. <laughs> no, you can do it. I, I, I know really, that he can. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure you can. I really do want to make sure that we touch on Latino studies. You know, myself, I'm a Chicano studies professor. The podcast is called The Reality Dysfunction. The subtitle for it is Broadcasting Chicano Epistemology from Occupied Aslan. And so with each episode, I mean, we're trying really hard to bring it back to the Latino community. And I know there are a lot of podcasts like about culture, like music and art and entertainment and stuff. But I mean, we really need to be able to have these conversations within a political context and hopefully heal this rift that exists in people's minds that separates politics from culture. 
or uh, culture from economics, you know, because in fact, you know, all of those things together form the way that we live our lives. And so, but it's just so, you know, convenient within a capitalist system to think about them. I mean, we're separated from that the same way that we're separated from, from our own labor. And so, um, you okay. know, just having that kind of, that kind of conversation. Yeah, I was very excited when I saw that you were a Latino studies also too, because I think that throws, um, that throws it open to a, a whole nother kind of conversation. Yeah, I, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned that because um, I was having a conversation with somebody about privilege and labor. I think it was with the woman from the intercept and you know um basically recognizing that an amazon order um the male person or the person yeah person who's delivering your food from whole foods or the or from the basic restaurant in the neighborhood that is more than likely uh mexican america maybe someone who's undocumented as well and while we have these public health awareness of not going out these groups of people kind of like are part of the oversight of the warning per se. Right. They're not told to not go out. They have to go out. So their labor gets grossly unrecognized within some narrative as well. Um, especially being um, a person who's in um, Latinx studies is one way I like to think about is how are the ways we are not recognized in many different platforms. But to start off everything, um, I wanted just to kind of like create like this image for people when they enter prison or in fact Rikers Island. If you were to like just to go to you know, the closest local MTA train station in New York City, if anybody knows how they are around 3.30 in the morning, they're filthy. You have like random people who have mental health awareness, drunks, a set of people who are not necessarily um, the people you will want to be next to every day and then people are like working towards like pushing further to the margins who have all but a bunch of son of bitches. But to get back on track, you will go to this train station, it's dirty, there's people sleeping on the train. That's kind of the level of cleanliness, right? Because is kept. You could sweep that place, you could mop it, but no matter what you could do, there's a certain level of grit and filth that's embedded in, in the place. So, you take that level of filth and you stack 50, per, 50 people within a closed environment, you have a public health issue, meaning that you have an issue where people are just in close proximity and sharing germs within close proximity. So the likelihood that a person just contracts a cold, a flu virus, are very high. Nevertheless, to account the rates of HIV, tuberculosis, hepatitis, and whatnot that are already present in the system, you're basically dealing with a system that will basically combust within itself. So Rikers Island within itself is a public health issue before COVID. Now with the coronavirus, and honestly, it's, it exasperates the issue. You already have a public health issue on hand now. It exasperates it to the level of sickness becoming or equaling death due to exposure. And I think, you know, that's something that we need to highlight. And you would think that, like, DOC would take, like, further precautions to basically, you know, you have, like, the analogy of of the public health crisis, the train station, but you ask yourself, what kind of medical health does a train station have to offer? If that makes sense to anyone, I'm just going off little concepts. I'm trying to practice. So medical or sick call is ran on a daily basis that allows people who are incarcerated in Rikers Island the opportunity to address a medical issue, whether it be from tendonitis, diabetes, or the common cold, they have an opportunity to see a healthcare protection. However, during COVID, that has been suspended, that opportunity. Even though with sickle being, being present without COVID, I'll give you an example through a story that I know about an older gentleman who was incarcerated with me in, in Rikers Island. I mean, pardon me, in the boat. So it was an old um, Afro-Latino man. Um, he was clearly um, suffering from a little bit of dementia. But if you would address him, he had all the scruples. It was just at moments when he was alone where he would begin to talk to himself. 
So he apparently had a, a mental health issue that needed to be um, addressed. Is basically he needs to be in a retirement home and needs people to take care of him. Um, on top of that, he was always going to medical. He had medical issues. So one day I saw him attempting to clean out uh, a urinal. And I go to the urinal to go question him. And like, oye, coba, ¿qué tú estás haciendo con tu mano en, en la cosa? And it was like, oye, yo estoy tratando de limpiar, yo, yo estoy sangriando. And I was like, you're bleeding. And it was like, yeah, I'm pissing blood. At this point, COVID started to become a thing. So he was really scared because, you know, he didn't want to see any, anybody seeing him pissing blood, but he was obviously suffering from kidney failure. Yeah. Um, so I brought this to the attention of the officer and said, hey, this guy needs medical care. Um, they took him to wherever they took him to, and within a few hours, they brought him back. They didn't keep him overnight. They didn't check to see whether any medication they were giving him were, was going to work. He was basically prescribed medication before that, and it wasn't working, so he stopped taking it. But they brought him back in. And at this moment, COVID was on the awareness or on everybody else's minds, if that makes sense. So guys were like, pretty much like, what the fuck is he doing back here? Why is he like in a medical dorm with other people who are like him, or at least in a hospital to get adequate medical attention? So he's back in the dorm with us. And that's the level of care they give to people in general. Um, nevertheless, someone who's really vulnerable to contracting COVID or spreading. So that's how medical works. Even when I was being released from Rikers Island, there was no social distancing practice. I was never giving masks or anything. It's just basically, here's your shit. Cram on this bus with other guys and later. That's pretty much it, what it, what it goes to. Does that make sense? Yeah. I just actually did an episode the other day with two sisters from New York City who were very involved in working on public education. And so they were talking a lot about how difficult it is even to practice social distancing in a place like New York, where, you know, people are just, I mean, I mean, New York is New York, right? I mean, there's people everywhere in New York. That totally makes sense. I guess, you know, how do you, as you, you're coming out of, you know, Rikers, um, and I'm assuming that Rikers is like most other prisons in this country, that it's primarily full of uh, Black and Latino inmates. How do you see that, that level of negligence? I mean, do you see it translating into the, into the neighborhoods? Oh, um, wow, it's hard not to be theoretical because it's <laughs> like, uh, I think you get it. Um, yeah, the negligence is definitely there, um, down to my rearrest, or the targeting is definitely there. Um, historically, it's always been there. I think it's kind of like it's further compounded by the fact that you are incarcerated. Mm -hmm. So you're a part of this extremely dispensable uh, um, portion of the community. Yeah. And the fact that you're initially like the idea of prison is the, the cordoning off or the uh, quarantining of people in general. And it kind of like highlights how the negligence is present in everywhere. I was speaking to someone earlier today and I was telling her, hey, you know, um, I might be thinking about moving to the Bronx. And she was like, dude, don't fucking go there. There's um, um, some information that came out that basically said hospitals in Bronx in comparison to um, neighborhoods that I guess were considered white and affluent are extremely different in the amount of resources and services, meaning that the white affluent areas are being serviced way differently. That's been the common narrative that there is a high level of negligence there's, and there's a definitive connection between the communities who it happens to and where they end up eventually, i.e. prison. How that negligence further extends and becomes like an exasperation of that negligence yeah. while once incarcerated. But it's a, to think about it, um, not only within the concept of dismantling prisons, but dismantling systems that allow negligence to occur repetitively. And I think that's something that as like advocates and activists that we have to constantly harp on, the systems of the politicians we put in place that 
allow these negligence, negligent uh, behaviors and systems to constantly reproduce and perpetuate themselves. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Caitlin, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the organizing that was going on while uh, uh, Jose was, was in there, because I think that that's also like a fascinating part of this. I mean, so often, you know, people really believe, and I mean, they believe it because they've been taught to believe it, that there isn't shit they can do about anything. Like we all just, you know, got to take it. I think these types of stories about how you turn those rusty wheels are really important. Yeah. No, I think it's funny because that's something that Jose and I have been joking about since he came home because um, there's a lot of good, there's a lot of good um, reason to have those doubts. You know, I mean, I think even in the loss of Bernie Sanders campaign all at the same time, like there, there's a lot of feeling of like those efforts can't be enough, but the experience of trying to get Jose home from the community of people that have come together to do that, all are experiencing the same thing right now, which is that this struggling together, even to do something that seemed impossible, was the thing that's gotten us all through this difficult time. Yeah. And that is as important to me as, um, as anything else, because it's also a reason in and of itself to keep organizing. Um, we really want everyone to get out of Rikers immediately. We know that the governor has the power to do mass commutations. We know that de Blasio has a plan in place to close Rikers that we would like to augment to obviously not include building any new jails. All that to say that there's been a robust public conversation in New York City about closing Rikers, and there have been lots of organizations that have been doing incredible work for a long time to expose that, that jail in particular for what it is and to build collective power to close it down. So one of the first things we wanted to do when we were trying to get Jose home was connect with those organizations to learn what we needed to learn to, uh, we did power mapping. We were like, who is the decision maker that, that can get him home? Because the legal avenues were really shut down. Um, yeah. He couldn't get a hearing. They, they really suspended due process. Um, we were working with the New York Civil Liberties Union, with the Bronx Defenders, with the Legal Aid Society, with the Parole Revocation Defense Unit, with the NYU Bernstein Institute for Human Rights. I mean, we were all over the city trying to get folks to help us explain how to get someone out of here. What we learned was that because the press, of course, we're in the middle of a crisis. And of course, like Jose is speaking to the people who are incarcerated in New York City, just like in the crisis of Hurricane Sandy, are the, considered the most disposable. So it is up to us to put a plan together in place and push on the right decision makers and, and have the right collective strategies, because we, we were able to not only get Jose released, but to push to the front of media in the city the issue that the city isn't doing what they are saying they're doing in terms of releasing people. Brother, you had quite a crew working for you right there. Those are, those are some big guns, man. They, they were Listen, cool. you've been around her, right? Don't let that smell <laughs> fucking fool you, man. I know. She's a terror. <laughs> yeah. I'm his boss, so you better watch your tone. Yeah. I love you. <laughs> you know, they say dynamite comes in small packages, so... Yeah. That's right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Dr. Hammer, I know you want to weigh in on this. What, on uh, Caitlin being a badass? <laughs> <laughs> no, we, on strategy, Zoe. I called start, Zoe. We can start I called there. Zoe. I called Lydia Hello Hobbs, our postdoc. I called Ruthie Gilmore. I got on, I was on with Ruthie Gilmore and Craig Gilmore. I mean, we, and that's not even to include other organizations that we, that we ended up working with. And I want to really, really stress this, that we are still working with. Because every time we ask someone to do a call, which is what we ended up doing a phone zap, and that's just another, you know, gift from Kim Wilson that she trained our staff and Jose's family to do a phone zap so that once we identified the right targets, we were able to get, we had 167 logged calls in three hours. Um, and that's the day we got him out. Jose, I was, when I was listening to the um, Beyond Prisons podcast, you were talking about the conditions in the barge itself. 
And I was also very surprised to hear that there's a ship that they uh, hold people on and the the way that you guys were sleeping. I was wondering if we just talk about that a little bit because it really, I was just like, wow, very shocked. Yeah, so basically we call it the boat. It's in, located in Hunts Point in the Bronx. And it's like literally a boat. Yeah, with a deck. <laughs> Every, everything you could possibly think that a boat has. It has. And yeah, so um, to describe like a, a dorm unit, you'll have like two sections. One would be um, like a wide open space. So I have a TV, a place where you, they do like the pantry feed up. And then the bathroom, where it's just really not a quite of separation between the actual bathroom and the dorm space. It's just like, it's just open. And then you have um, the actual sleeping quarters. I could probably draw you a diagram one day. But it's a boat, so um, from time to time, you actually feel it rock or move. Yeah. Uh, so it's like, it, it kind of reminds you of that stuff. Well, it reminds you that you're on a boat, and it's a prison boat as well. So to describe how you sleep, so you see how the screens are situated? Yeah. So my head will be he- Oh, you can't see. My head will be on this side, and your head will be right next to mine. Mm. And, and our feet will be pay, um, pointing outward this way. So heads here, feet this way. I figure I could do it further away. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's what you were sharing. Um, and they're together. They're bolted down. So even if you wanted to just take the beds and separate them, was not possible. They're bolted down. It also runs with a HVAC system. Or at least I, I think that's what you could call them. So that allows the air to be filtered. And when you look at the, the filters, so it'll be like a, a grate where the air is coming out of and it's just coated with dirt and dust. And cake. The only way you could possibly clean it is if someone were to come and unbolt it or unweld it and clean it out yeah. and then redo it. Um, the same thing with any form of ventilation or, or just anything there. Uh, you have to like, unbolt or unscrew and then replace and that's just how it works and when we were, i was there the the hvac system stopped working so you're not able to open windows because it's a boat you can't open windows on a boat right so it's really really important that you have a ventilation system in a boat this stopped working so we weren't able to get fresh air and all they did was bring in an industrial fan and point it towards the dorm, and that's it. One of the things that I also found interesting, so there's like a slot that's like no bigger than uh, tablets, where an officer can hand you toilet paper or soaps, or you could yell through it to get their attention. Um, but they had like some type of like ventilation system inside there that was like basically purifying the air inside their compartment or bubble out into the dormitory. So more than likely at this point, we weren't exposed to COVID because we were locked up prior to it. Right. They're exposed. They're wearing masks. They're touching everything. And whatever they're breathing, sneezing, farting, whatever air, it's actually filtering out from their enclosure into our space. Mm. So it's effectually contaminating our air. On top of that, we don't have a recourse to actually ventilate air because the whole system that's really not good yeah. <laughs> like, yeah and there wasn't no expediency to fix it it was just like hey use fans it gets hot take off your shirt it gets cold put something on um that's pretty much it and uh yeah that's yeah. <laughs> yeah, done it's it's interesting how important the ventilation system is, is because like i got sick there yeah I was sick. The guy, um, Kuba, he he was pissing blood. Um, God knows what else anybody else has. Um, and I had got really uh, like sick, and um, and at that point, it's like I had lost my sense of smell. Um, I had end up having like the di- diarrhea um, and stomach cramps. My body got really achy, and then all I did was just throw on some thermals, bundled under the two quilts, and just laid in bed all day. Yeah. And whenever they brought food, I ate it, went back to bed. I kind of took that for what it was, that usually when you are incarcerated or are reincarcerated, the food's really poor. You're in close proximity to a bunch of people. 
everyone in her has like some level of germs they're going to yeah. spread within that proximity so you're going to get something um it's just no way way about it you're at least going to get diarrhea for a while because the food is extremely processed yeah so that happened and then you know guys are smoking there so if you're asthmatic it's really bad because you don't have access to fresh air and there's no way you could possibly open a window to get fresh air and so it's like in my case i was asthmatic as a child i used to have like bouts of um, croup i think you call it where like you wake up in the middle of the night you can't breathe your your um larynx closes up to like a pin drop so yeah eventually when i started to get these pains in my throat i thought it was like holy shit you know um I'm, I'm getting really sick at this point so i was attempting to put down a sick call and for three days they didn't call me down and at this point, the only reason why I was able to like function is because someone gave me ibuprofen, 800 milligrams, and I was taking those yeah. um, throughout the process of day to like basically stave off the pain. Eventually, it got to a point where I really couldn't talk at this at this point, and my ears started to hurt. And so I had somebody speak to our officer and let him know that I was fucking sick and and I needed help. And prior to that, I had found out that they had canceled sick call through another officer. Having somebody speak to me, I knew with them that everybody's on the high alarm for COVID. That was like the best strategic move to get to get the opportunity to, to, to have someone see me at medical. And then I just had laryngitis. They gave me antibiotics and uh, <laughs> I'm back to normal. You're back to normal. Well, thank God for that. I was just gonna ask a, a question, but if you have a question, you- I do not have a question. I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit, uh, both of you, about the larger, I know there's been a long-term campaign to close Rikers, a proposal to build a bunch of other jails and uh, <laughs> to replace it. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the ways that um, th that larger sort of political context around the fight to close Rikers in New York City and how COVID intersects with that. and. If you see, I mean, and how do you see that affecting that larger struggle? Like, is that, I know it's really hard for some small organizations to continue existing right now. Well, at the same time, there's all sorts of possibilities for shifts in consciousness, like the work that you all have been doing, getting the story out there. So I wondered if you could contextualize that a little bit for, for us. Yeah. There are lots of people who know the details of these campaigns much, much better. So this will be kind of a broad sweep, but Rikers Island, like most jails, is full mostly of people who can't afford to bail themselves out right. or whose families can't afford to bail themselves out. Um, and many, especially poor and disproportionately black and brown communities in New York have long been critical of Rikers. And that's just been a known fact. Um, and there have been many waves of them, 15 um, Khalif Browder, who was a minor and, you know, a, a young person, was arrested allegedly for stealing a backpack. And he was held for three years and almost three years. And he ended up finally, when, because his family couldn't afford bail, and when he was released, you know, the, his experience, including long-term solitary confinement as a young person, he did not survive. And his family, his brother in particular, have been leaders in our city around drawing attention to that uh, murder and to what it's like for people on Rikers. Um, and then, and just the fact of bail, that if you are not impacted by that, you don't, you don't know. Um, it can be 5,000. I once, you know, for a friend who was on a minor, arrest you know for like petty vandalism you know as a teenager the bail was fifteen thousand mm. dollars and his mother who had a disabled she lives up on the unit up above me she has a daughter who uses a wheelchair and that you know her son was the person that had to carry the wheelchair up the four flights of stairs to get his sister upstairs so when he's arrested and and no one can get him home because no one has fifteen thousand dollars on hand it, it not only impacts the person who's incarcerated, it seriously disrupted his entire family's life. And it took a, a kind of community campaign to raise the bail money to get him home. 
So lots of families have been fighting Rikers for that reason. And there was a campaign from No New Jails, which is affiliated with the No New Jails organizations in Los Angeles that had the incredible victory of stopping two new jails in LA. Um, and Zoe from SJCO has taken us and students to a lot of those county board of supervisor meetings. And we've gotten to work on those campaigns because they've been a decade and a half in the making. Um, and the organizations like Dignity Empower Now and Free LA that have kept that campaign going. Um, we, we learned a lot from them in New York. Very quickly, however, the mayor of New York, Bill de Blasio, co-opted that campaign, the Close Rikers campaign, and actually turned it into a mayoral proposal that would close Rikers and open, at the same time, four new jails, one in each borough except for Staten Island. There was a long process of review um, where it went to different community boards, almost all of whom voted no and against the plan, and yet it's going forward still today. So for all of us in New York who know that the city doesn't need to have a warehouse for people who are on, you know, small violations, there's just an abundance of research, even coming from the, the Department of Corrections itself, that being held in jail or, or having, uh, you know, there's other incentives to come back to court. There's no evidence that we need jails to warehouse people who need bail. So we really wanted to draw attention to, to that larger campaign and build on it when we were trying to get Jose home, because getting him home took the work of a lot of people who, as I said, have been doing this a long time. Yeah. I mean, getting anybody out of jail anywhere is a lot of work. When I think about um, where it actually intersects is that if you would think about like the whole idea of, of basically closing a jail, what a necessity for closing a jail, it's kind of highlighting more so at this time. And even like the ludicrousy of opening more jails to create another possibility that's happening. It's, it kind of highlights how fucking stupid um, government is and how much of jails has become a moneymaker for people or individuals and companies. So I think like when we start to also think about the larger campaigns that are at hand, it's also to understand how deeply fractured they are. And there's groups of people who are in the realm of abolition who really think about dismantling or reforming. And I think it's very important to make distinguishes between what we do as PEP or attempting to do or what our ethos are along the lines of dismantling a system that is it's intersectional within itself, the same group of government that supports the oppression of one group of people here in America also supports one across in Palestine as well. Right. So it's to show how these systems are interrelated within themselves and need to be dismantled and abolished versus asking to change a system that is doing its actual job. It's breaking people. So this is what they want to do for profit. And I think it's a part of this long narrative of us like fight against imperialists and, and, and narratives of empire. So, yeah. The comments that you're making about the health conditions, um, just the person that you were next to who had obviously had incredible amounts of vulnerability and pre-existing conditions. And that, you know, I mean, prisons have had excessively high rates of hep C and HIV and all sorts of things this has been um, an issue that abolitionists have talked about for you know many decades. The state of being incarcerated is, is itself a pre-existing condition. And then the the story Caitlin was telling about her neighbor who has you know health needs and only their um, incarcerated loved one was able to carry the wheelchair up and down the stairs. You can see how the um, yeah. the lack of access to healthcare is so highlighted by the situation, right? Like. Um, you know, that's what, one of the things that abolitionists say as abolition is 1% about what we want to tear down and 99% about what we want to put in its place. So. Yeah. And it kind of makes me think about like this, the, the idea of negligence um, Todd had mentioned earlier. It shows how just people, if we were to bring it to like a larger capitalistic um, ideal, how people are becoming this 
reducible to a profit or reducible to a number, which is essentially like when we look at how, and it's really clear with COVID, how guys are tested in prison where they're not tested. Well, how the lack of the test present in prison is kind of shown out here in the broad public that until you reach a certain point of basically showing symptoms that you're really sick, New York City, Department of Health or whoever is in charge is not going to step in trying to save your life. So even though you're quarantined, I mean, even though you're in prison, the healthcare industry itself is is not doing, it's kind of, it's in par with what's happening in society. Yeah. When you were talking earlier, Jose, about prisons as quarantine, and I know that's a big, it's been a big thread throughout this whole conversation. I mean, it really, it strikes me because you, if you think about it, like people sometimes have a hard time imagining, you know, how that could be. But if you think about the over-incarceration of black and brown bodies in the United States, I mean, you can really begin to see how like within a settler colonial system that those bodies are really, I mean, they're perceived by the dominant societies like this invading virus, right? That needs to be contained. It needs to be corralled. It needs to be dealt with. Or, you know, it needs to be eradicated. That hit me when you said that earlier about prisons as quarantine. Very true. It also really points to, you know how, like, we get sometimes with people when they're sick and that we kind of feel sorry for them, but but at a certain point we're all like, there's not anything that I can do about it. I think it's kind of the same thing with this. We think about it, we think about these invading brown hordes as an illness, as a sickness, <laughs> right? And, and, you know, I mean, also to the whole idea of um, particularly like for people coming from Mexico and, and Central America, particularly, I don't think that it's just true of them, but even denial of indigeneity, right? And that because these geopolitical borders are, are here right now, that means that you're, you know, an immigrant, that you're from someplace else. And so, again, you know, we start thinking about how to like, take down the prison industrial complex, you know, that it really, I think that what Zoe just said a second ago is true. I mean, it's 1% about what we want to like immediately tear down and 99% about what needs to happen as a result of that. So. Yeah, I definitely agree. And it's like, I mean, agree. What I would like call for is like, so the population actually be reduced to 50% of its capacity of what it is now. Um, even then you can't still, can't socially distance yourself. But if we would even theoretically say that these people are innocent to proven guilty, there shouldn't be anybody in prison. Yeah. Because essentially you're just sitting up awaiting a sentence or fighting your in- for your innocence. But even if we couldn't do that for whatever reason, even if it was at 50%, even if we did have adequate sick call or emergency, it's still not all right. And that's the issue. It's still not a right to cordon off people. It's, I don't know. Some people feel that it's a, it's a necessary thing. But going back to this idea of prison as quarantine, it's also like, I look at it as like a compounding of what a quarantine is. If we were to think about it within the concept of the invading brown horde, the horde of people who are socially distanced already. Yeah. Or... Yeah, exactly. Experiencing yeah. a level of social death already, and then double that with the the whole thing where you're physically not there. And it goes back to even like labor logics, where you're allowed to be a part of our community, you're allowed to like play a pivotal role in it, but your labor is reducible to an Amazon, yeah, or to feeding the bellies of the privileged. Yeah. And a lot of these ideas aren't really being acknowledged how they're very much in play. A lot of this, um, yeah, we're not out of the shit. Haven't been out of the shit. We're just looking at uh, a different format. Yeah. But to bring it to somewhere, maybe um, somewhere else, I'm a grad student at um, the Department of Social and Cultural Analysis um, at NYU. Um, and that's pretty much just a fancier way of saying um, I'm in the American Studies Department. I'm basically an American studies student. Hopefully, one day I'll be a doctoral candidate. Maybe if um, Caitlin works at magic. <laughs> so, we're, I'm equally demanding, I guess.
it's like <laughs> it's magic slash forcing. Just yeah. yeah. Hey, yes. Be careful. You might get a title nine. We need. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're ready for Doctor Diaz. We're Dr. ready. Diaz. I like the way that it was cut. Yeah, I do. Um, <laughs> it was weird. I actually saw her her name. She's gonna be like doing like a little feature in one of my classrooms and the professor's like, Dr. Norse will be joining us. I'm like, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's really but, funny because but it's whenever, dope. <laughs> whenever we were getting, you know, a lot of things happened every day that we all thought we're not going to get him home, right. you know, because we would get encouraged. Like on the 23rd, we saw March 23rd, we saw de Blasio announce, yeah, we're going to let, 300 people out of Rikers. March 23rd, they transfer Jose in after they mm. have confirmed cases. You know, like we just kept seeing things like that happen. And so to keep the spirit light, I being like, y'all, we have to get Jose home because he is graduating with his master's in May and I'm graduating with my PhD and we have a plan for a double graduation party and I'm yeah. not rescheduling. Like we're not rescheduling. <laughs> uh, but the, one of the weirdest parts, I remember I was speaking to Kayla on the phone when I was inside and she kept it real with me. She was like, dude, you know, this shit ain't looking good for you. And so- um, They were super hung up on, on his category one charge yeah. 15 years ago. Yeah. And, and it was just really clear that, you know, as you said really clearly on the interview with Kim, the, the real trouble and I think the contradiction that, that we already know we're stepping into with open eyes and running a prison education program is that we're not just trying to add college to prison and think that that is the solution to the fundamental problem that you were just describing so well and the role that, that prison plays or that incarceration and confinement plays in the capitalist world that we live in. Right. Um, it's really good, I think, to Jose, I'm gonna, I'll pass it back to you, but I just feel like to speak a little bit about the work that he's done since he's got home, I just wanna say, like, the rest of us were really worried about him getting, getting out, but Jose hasn't had a breath since he's been home because he's been so focused on trying to get anybody else out and everybody else out. And I think that that's one of the, the things that can be a challenge, that tension and that abolition, abolitionists I've seen get criticized for, you know, that for, as of not caring about the conditions inside of people right now because yeah. we're fighting for this impossible thing that can never really happen. Um, and I think it was really powerful for a lot of the people that were working on that campaign to see that abolition is a compass. It's an ethic. It's a theory of change. And, and we can use that at something very particular, like trying to get one person home in a way that doesn't exceptionalize and that, um, or that does so as strategically and limitedly as possible, which we did in like a letter to a judge, for example. But that includes, you know, everyone in the, the fundamental demand, which is that if you're acknowledging that you need to release some people because there's a public health crisis, then what you're saying is the most reasonable response to this public health crisis is to release people. And so then it becomes an issue of parsing which people you're going to deem worthy of release when actually the fact is, and the head doctor of Rikers and many other professionals and public health advocates are saying, a jail, for example, is a revolving door. There are some horrifying maps um, of New York and the five boroughs, and it is the Bronx, it is Queens, it is the same black and brown communities that are disproportionately dying. Like the rates of, of difference is it's staggering. Yeah. Um, and we're just at the beginning. And then we're just at the beginning of what we know is the actual underlying crisis here, the pandemic like of capitalism, which is record unemployment, and you know the impending depression that's the part that i think we're also going to have to train ourselves for in this moment because we all we also work with a lot of our students who are home of course and they're losing their jobs just as you all know with the with the restaurant workers union organizing that you're doing it's this is that's going to be also a devastating public health crisis yeah what makes releasing me so palpable to people is that I am at NYU student and these other things. So I have these level of resources. Right. Um, but that's like a really like, um, 
left moder moderate conservative logic where it's okay to release a certain type of person who has reformed their life. And I think the, the New York Times kind of gets really good at like highlighting the, the, the necessity of releasing people in general. But also it's like they frame it as like a public health issue, which is yeah. good. But if guy, but it's also, it's like back to Ernesto's point where this brown horde, this black horde is released that then could possibly contaminate the free world. Yep. Right. It's also a fucking problem. That's problematic. Yes. Within itself because yep. that's, that feeds into the original narrative of like these criminalized people or me, fucking me, they, even the exceptional dude, you know, that they, <laughs> they claim to want to like Exactly. Free. So exactly. there's, even though there's a lot of work being done, it's still reproduces like some bullshit and i think you got to call those things and even though um what's the saying the path paved to hell is with good intentions or that's something like that exactly or the that path is. paved yes. with good analogy is paved with <laughs> fucked up words <laughs> <laughs> but um <laughs> so i think that's really really it so i'm nothing exceptional i'm just like any other person who just picked up a fucking book and just read and just sat down with a vocabulary builder and spent the whole day trying to sound pretentious and failing at it. Um, <laughs> and then being able to be given the opportunity to study. And it's very important that when we think about the people who do most harm, it's actually very educated people. It's very mm -hmm. smart people who are doing a lot of harm. That's right. And so when I get an education, it's just a, an opportunity to reproduce something something more than what the last generation of people were, which is part of this larger framework of being a first-generation college student, which is like, holy shit, first Columbus came, massacred the people, and then, oh, now I get college. So um, this is like some of the ideas that we have to like think about, the long historical context or, uh, of it all. So when I think about um, Latinx studies and the work that I'm doing is to really think about that broader historical context um, especially with my work within stickball and how Ernesto, you had mentioned it earlier about how we have the tendency of like separating culture with capitalism, mm -hmm. but a perfect place where you kind of see this thing merge or amalgamate is where you have this idea of gentrification, where culture and profit is kind of uh, conflated, where you lose out on culture, the more and more you import people into a neighborhood. And especially a place like um, East Harlem, where, where I'm really looking at as a place to look at the urban landscape, culture, in a really ephemeral way, mainly because many of the inhabitants of the Puerto Rican, Black or Latinos that were originally there are gone because they didn't own property. So what they did own was the landscape, the urban block. And to see that begin to shift and change kind of speaks to the fact that it's shifting and changing the demographic of the neighborhood, but also the look and feel of the neighborhood is changing as well as those same groups of people are then moved out of the space yeah. and changed into like a different geographical setting where the actual act of stickball can't physically be played depending on where you move. So it's like this really archiving, archiving of this memory that is being like shifted and changed through gentrification on one score, but also looking how the game of stickball came together as a, a diasporic formation. So we think about the African-American community and their whole, um, their whole history of being in America and then the movement up into Harlem through the Renaissance, Fleet and Cruz South, Puerto Ricans and Cubans and different groups of um, Latinx people moving into New York City as the first exile or political refugees in fighting against Spain and colonial conquest and then to be seated over in, um, I think, the Organic Act. is to really look at how these communities begin to build and what kind of like in place in contiguous neighborhoods. And that's not to even speak about um, the formation of the Kingdom of Italy. It wasn't always Italy, but the most of the people who began migrating in the early 1900s were Sicilian, and they themselves were agrarian workers who were fleeing oppression. So you have these three diasporic groups due to system, um, systemic issues or oppressions going on who kind of find themselves lodged in New York City next to each other. Yeah. And depending on where 
you were located, you formed friendships through play. And so it's really looking at like how play operates and how play is also a cultural formation, but also a place of contention as well. Yeah. And it also kinds of for, formates some of the the racial dynamics and how possibly a trajectory of a neighborhood could go. This is me maybe one day being a professor. I could talk that shit too. No, I'm just teasing. But um, <laughs> you're doing a good job right now. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm taking notes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, so uh, I just want to say that Jose, like, Pat was also trying to like finish incompletes and also do courses. Like that, one of the things what we thought we were gonna, we thought our biggest problem when Jose went in on March second, our biggest problem was how is he gonna get to graduation in May, and so we had this whole plan of like talking to the professors and collecting work and getting him the books that he needed from his house and the phone and the keys and the, you know all that. And, um, and, and then we didn't get to talk as frequently as you were talking to obviously Rachel's legal and family stuff. But when we did, like every time he was like, Oh, I was reading the Munoz today and I was really thinking, you know, <laughs> I was like, Oh my God, he's staying up with the studies. Yeah, I, I, I was. And the fact that I had incompletes kind of like, so that I'm also a slacker as student too. <laughs> <laughs> um, but also it's like even having the opportunity to discuss queer theory with guys and really like, really complex topics um, and just dealing with guys like, okay, I see what you're making, but like that gay shit, dude, I don't know, man. I was like, hey, man, it is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> so it's really having an opportunity to teach and they actually started to call me the professor. There so we're kind of like, um, yeah, and it was like, I was like, kind of like, holy shit, like, okay, my whole identity has shifted on yeah. the inside as well. Yeah. But to go... To go back to what I was speaking about, and I think like the importance of me me wanting to become a professor is to also think about things that are stakes outside of my own individual career. As a person who's part of um, uh, or descendant of an indigenous group that was fully mixed and lost a lot through colonialism or settler colonialism, um, I think it's very important for a person within academia who is a Latinx person to teach Latinx history and Latinx cultural analysis, mainly because if we are not doing it, who's going to do it for us? Right. And I think that's very important. I think the black community does really well in doing that or understanding the idea and fighting hard towards representing that within academia and also other platforms as well. But I think we also have to think about ways where we can build coalitions within academia so our voices are equally heard on, uh, upon an inter, inter, intersectional, hold on, I just saw your chat thing. Oh, okay, yeah, that's bad. <laughs> so we also, we also have to think about how we can build coalitions between communities and how we have intersectional and um, transnational struggles within the broader world as well. Yeah. Yes. Right. That's all we have for today. And I want to thank Jose, Caitlin, and Zoe for joining us on this uh, very fascinating conversation about mass incarceration, how it disproportionately affects black and brown communities, and how fighting for prison abolition is a movement that we should all get behind. And in the meantime, I want to encourage you all to stay home, stay safe, and remember, this can't last forever. <laughs>